Okay, in this class, we are going to move into review of all the pathology that can directly affect the lower extremity foot and nail with a focus on quickly reviewing the systemic conditions that you've studied in depth, but talking in more detail about gait disorders, deformities, and painful foot conditions. So let's quickly review the systemic conditions that you have already studied in depth, starting with vascular disorders. So you have already reviewed how critically important normal perfusion is to health of the lower extremity, the foot, the nail, the negative impact of any kind of impaired perfusion on wound healing, and on health of the tissues. So we've talked about lower extremity arterial disease. We're not gonna go back through that. We've already said any patient with lower extremity arterial disease is at increased risk for ulceration and very high risk for delayed healing. Now, just briefly mentioning conditions that you may encounter in providing foot and nail care. Berger's disease, also known as thromboangiitis obliterans, very common in young men who are heavy smokers. Now, it's very rare to get significant tissue necrosis. Occasionally, these patients will get um, some toe necrosis, but that's pretty much it. And the good news is that if we can engage them in smoking cessation, it almost always relieves the symptoms. Raynaud's, also relatively common. Um, you get vasospasm in response to cold or stress. Typically does not cause tissue loss or ulceration, but you can get brittle nails. We mention it because patients will mention it to you. Hey, this is what I notice when I'm under a lot of stress or it's really cold outside. I get like my fingers turn blue or turn white and they get kind of numb. They feel really weird and then it wears off. You just wanna be able to explain what that is and to reassure the individual. Also tell them to wear warm gloves. Blue toe syndrome, not common but of course something that we should know about if we're providing foot and nail care. This is when you throw a small clot to an arterial feeding the toe, typically um, the great toe, but it could be another toe, where you get acute onset of cyanosis and acute onset of pain. Pulses can be palpable because pulses are proximal to the area of involvement. So you're not focused on, oh, you've got palpable pulses. You're focused on the toe is blue. That's not normal. You've got acute pain. That's not normal. Let me get you to vascular where they can do something about this. Now we have covered this before, but it is so critically important that we will cover it again. Because perfusion is essential to health and to your ability to um, heal any minor trauma, 
We always, always assess perfusion before providing nail care. Even if this is a person we've worked with before, everything was fine before, perfusion changes. So we always provide a screening assessment and when we get to assessment, you'll hear more about, you're always gonna check pulses, you're always gonna check cap refill, you're always going to assess for trophic changes of skin, hair, and nails. If you're providing foot and nail care for someone who has known lower extremity or arterial disease, or your screening assessment showed evidence of lower extremity or arterial disease, you're going to be very cautious. You have to prevent injury since any injury is very unlikely to heal. So that means if I'm pairing a callus, I'm not going to go all the way to the base. It means if I'm working on an ingrown nail, I'm gonna be very careful. I'm gonna be more conservative than I would be if that patient had normal perfusion. If I have a patient with arterial disease, I'm going to definitely counsel them avoid commercial nail salons. You cannot take the chance because it could result in amputation. And finally, I'm going to make absolutely sure that any patient who has evidence of lower extremity or arterial disease is being followed by vascular. What about lower extremity venous disease? Well, we've already reviewed what this means. We've already talked about the fact that you have failure of the valvular system, that that allows two-way flow of venous blood, backflow into the superficial system, a lot of congestion in the capillary bed, fluid leaks out of the capillary bed into the soft tissue that creates an inflammatory response that places the tissues high risk for ulceration. Now, the clinical indicators of venous insufficiency, the number one indicator is edema. A second very common indicator is hemosiderosis, which is what you see on the bottom illustration, that dark brown gray discoloration of the skin. That happens when you have blood forced out of the capillaries into the soft tissues. The red blood cells break down, leave their pigment behind. Clients frequently ask, is this reversible? Will this discoloration go away? No, because it's in the dermis and the sub-Q tissue, and no, it's not going to go away. You might see ulceration. You might see venous dermatitis, which is an acute inflammatory response, typically associated with intense pruritus, flakiness, erythema, possibly weeping of clear serous fluid, and always requires compression, elevation, wound care, and if there is venous dermatitis, it also requires topical steroids. Bottom line, again, if we see evidence of venous disease, we educate the patient and we make sure that patient's being followed 
by a wound care specialist and someone with specialty in venous disease. And lymphedema, we talked briefly about lymphedema in the last class, so you know the problem here is failure of lymphatic drainage. Something has happened to the lymphatic system. Many times you have had extensive resection of the lymphatics due to um, extensive malignancy, requiring very radical surgical procedures. In other countries, sometimes it's a parasitic infection that has destroyed the lymphatics. The third thing you can see is if you have a patient with long-standing venous disease, the chronic scarring from recurrent venous ulceration and chronic tissue fibrosis can result in damage to the lymphatic system in the area, and you can get a secondary lymphedema. So the end result of damage to the lymphatic system is edema that involves the entire extremity from the toes to the groin. You get that positive stemmer sign. You cannot pinch the skin at the base of the second toe. If you have grade three or stage three lymphedema, you end up with soft tissue changes that creates a cobblestoning effect that you see on the slides. And you can also see these extensive papillomatous outgrowths. So it looks like little nodules, little papillomas. That is a result of the soft tissue changes and the massive increase in the size of the limb. The critical thing for us to realize is this patient requires specialty care. This patient has to go to a lymphedema treatment center where they can do manual lymphatic drainage, high-level compression. Um, occasionally, patients do require surgical intervention. Now, what can we do? We can provide high-level hygienic care, so make sure that we're cleansing the lower extremity, the foot, the uh, toes very thoroughly, ideally with an antimicrobial cleanser. Rinse really well. Use moisturizers and humectants to keep the skin as soft as possible. Again, we need to use extreme caution in providing foot and nail care because these patients are very high risk for infection in response to even minor trauma. And the most important thing, get them to a specialist. Occasionally, you will be caring for patients who have autoimmune disorders like scleroderma. I know in our uh, foot and nail clinic, we had several patients with scleroderma. And if you've taken care of these patients, you know that there are fibrotic changes in the soft tissue. The soft tissue becomes very firm, very rigid, very inflexible. And that means that wounds do not heal well because the tissue doesn't contract well, the edges of the skin do not pull in. So once again, we're just being extremely cautious in providing foot and nail care. We wanna make absolutely sure we do not cause any trauma 
because that could result in a non-healing wound. And of course, we're going to use our moisturizers and humectants. But the main thing is caution in providing foot and nail care. A lot of these patients are on steroids or other anti-inflammatories that interfere with healing. So yet another reason to be very cautious. Arthritis, we've already talked about. We know that we have rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis that can affect the small joints, so can affect the fingers and the toes, make it impossible for the person to provide their own care. Also, deformities of the toes increase the risk that they'll get corns or calluses increases the need for protective uh, padding like sleeves that we'll talk about a little bit later. Gout um, is primarily going to involve the great toe and the main thing is to make sure that all of these patients are being followed by rheumatology. Osteoarthritis, the main thing is difficulty getting to the foot and the toes because of hip and knee involvement. We've talked about the impact of sensory neuropathy, but any condition that alters sensory awareness affects the person's ability to provide safe foot and nail care, and also means that we as the professionals need to use extra caution. So this is our patients with diabetes, and neuropathy, we want to be aware that our patients who are much older also sustain some neuropathy associated with the process of aging and just the natural atrophy of nerve fibers. So be aware that your much older individuals may not report pain, may not be aware of pain may have corns and calluses and not even be aware that those areas were being subjected to chronic friction and shear, may have developing wounds and may be unaware of when they began. So same counseling for much older individuals as we provide for our diabetic patients. Also being aware that patients who have sustained spinal cord injury or if you have patients with spina bifida, all of these people high risk for painless trauma. And so we have to be very careful in providing care and we have to educate the patient on the importance of checking their feet every day. Um, so specific things that we want to tell them, we'll come back to this later, but just the basics. Make sure your shoes are always professionally fitted because you won't know if they're too tight or too short. Visually check your feet every day because you can't rely on your feet telling you what's going on. And always wear protective footwear when you're out of bed. We've also talked briefly about conditions affecting self-care, hygiene, nutrition, um, just basic hygienic care. So dementia, neurologic disorders, sometimes aging. And these are some of our target uh, patient populations. 
It also means that if we're caring for a patient with one of these conditions, we have to provide high-level education and very specific guidance to them in terms of what they need to do, what they can safely do, and what we should be providing for them. Also, we want to routinely ask patients about the medications they're taking. We want to be very alert to anticoagulant therapy because, of course, that, once again, means we need to um, provide a high level of caution when we're providing nail care, when we're pairing corns and calluses. Now, we're going to finish up by talking about gait disorders, foot deformities, and painful foot conditions. Some of these things you'll be familiar with, others you won't. Anything you're not familiar with, you need to study and learn before you take the certification exam. So talking about gait disorders, a lot of individuals have excessive pronation. And this is what it looks like. If you watch someone with excessive pronation, if you observe them standing, it looks as if they have no arch at all. It looks as if they have completely flat feet. The difference between an individual with excessive pronation and the person with a flat foot is that if you see this person at rest, they have a normal arch. This is a gait disorder. There's nothing anatomically wrong with their foot. What's happening is when they put weight on their foot, they're rolling their foot in, they're eliminating the arch. This causes marked increase in the pressure exerted against the plantar surface, and it means that they can get painful syndromes like plantar fasciitis. So if someone with excessive pronation is complaining of foot pain, or let's back it up, let's take it the other way. If you're providing foot and nail care to someone who complains of a lot of pain with walking, Look at them in a neutral position, non-weight bearing. You see an arch. Stand them up, the arch goes away. They have excessive pronation. Those are the people who need to be seen by an orthodontist so that they can construct a custom insert to provide them with appropriate support when they're walking to eliminate the pain. Now, pes planus and pes cavus, you need to know those terms. Pes planus means flat foot. Now, if a person really has pes planus, a flat foot, they will have no arch at rest. So you can look at their foot at rest, flat. Weight-bearing, flat. Many of these people are asymptomatic. So you say to them, do you have pain? Do you have pain with walking? Do you have pain with standing? No, I'm fine. Then no interventions required. But if you say to them, do you have pain when standing? Do you have pain with walking? Yes. Some pain with standing, but especially with walking. Okay, if they're complaining, on pe complaining of pain on the bottom edge or back of the heel or the foot, that occurs with standing or walking after a period of inactivity, they need intervention. 
they need to see an orthotist for construction of an insole. Clawfoot is the opposite, past cavus. So you can see on the bottom illustration an abnormally high arch. And again, it's significant if it's causing them pain. So that's what you ask. You say, I see you have a very pronounced arch. Is this causing you any difficulty? Are you having any pain with standing with walking? If yes, they need a referral to an orthotist. So just to summarize, flat foot, no arch at any time. Refer if they're symptomatic. Claw foot, abnormally high arch. Refer only if symptomatic. Excessive pronation, most of those patients do have pain and should be referred. Charcot foot, this will be the third time you've heard about it because it's so critically important. So you reviewed this or studied this when you were studying lower extremity neuropathic disease. We talked about it briefly in a previous class. So let's summarize what's going on with Charcot foot. You will definitely see people with Charcot foot and it will definitely be on your certification exam. So this is also known as osteoarthropathy and it's caused by hyperglycemia. So what happens is that with chronic hyperglycemia, you get damage to the autonomic nerves. The autonomic nerves normally cause the arteries to constrict and maintain appropriate diameter of the arteries to the foot. But if you lose that ability to constrict the arteries, you get chronic vasodilation. Chronic vasodilation demineralizes the bone. So now you've got osteopenia, very thin bones. Just stepping off the curb wrong can cause a fracture. Because most patients with autonomic or um, autonomic neuropathy also have sensory neuropathy, most of the time they sustain a fracture, but it doesn't hurt. They don't recognize that they have a fracture of the foot, so they keep walking. So now you sustain additional trauma, additional fractures because of altered weight bearing, and eventually you get total collapse of the midfoot, you get total loss of the arch, and you get this rocker bottom foot, severe bony deformity. Now, what can we do? We want to prevent Charcot foot because once it occurs, all we can do is modify footwear or send them for surgery. But if we can teach the diabetic patient appropriate monitoring, appropriate prevention, we can keep this from happening. So we want the patient with diabetes and neuropathy to monitor every day for any signs or symptoms of foot trauma. We want them to inspect the foot, to look for redness, to look for swelling. We want them to use a skin thermometer to check the temperature at different sites on the foot. And if they have elevated temperature over a site of redness, we want them to continue to monitor that. 
If it doesn't resolve within a couple of days, we want them to be seen so that any fracture is promptly identified and appropriately managed. If you have intact sensation and you fracture your foot, you know it immediately and you're not gonna keep walking on it because it hurts. Instead, you're gonna get it seen and you're gonna be put in a walking boot or a cast or whatever. That's what needs to happen with this patient, but they won't have the pain that prompts them to seek intervention. Instead, they have to look for evidence of a problem, identify evidence of a problem, and go see the physician. Once Charcot foot has occurred, the only thing we can do is to make sure we refer this patient to a podorthist who can literally customize a shoe for this patient, or they can have surgery. Now, a less common problem is something known as hallux limitus, hallux rigidus. Now, I'll tell you I now know about hallux limitus and hallux rigidus because I missed this the first time I took the foot and nail exam. I'm like, what is that? I have no idea what it is. Um, but it does frequently show up on the certification exam, and it will show up in your patient population. In your diabetic patient population because it's caused by trauma and by hyperglycemia. And the earliest sign is stiffness of the great toe and pain with flexion of the great toe. It hurts to bend the great toe. Um, now I want you to differentiate between hallux limitus, which is the early syndrome, and hallux rigidus, which is the end result. With hallux limitus, you have some pain and some stiffness, um, but the pain and the stiffness are noted primarily with standing. At rest, everything seems okay. There's no pain, no stiffness. You can bend the toe and it's okay. But when you're standing, that's when the patient notices um, pain, notices stiffness, and it's hard to flex the toe. With hallux rigidus, you have excessive flexion of the toe even at rest. So now you have a fixed deformity of the great toe and a lot more pain with standing and walking. So you would like to catch it in the early stages when it's hallux limitus. Keep it from progressing to hallux rigidus. And the main management is to modify footwear to assure that the shoe has a wide and deep toe box to accommodate the developing deformity. Other than that, it's surgery. Hammer toes, I think you know. Mallet and claw toes, you may know. But all three of these, you need to know. All of these involve flexion contractors of the toe joints. What's different is the joints involved. So with hammer toes, you have flexion contractures of the proximal joints, the proximal interphalangels. So you can see that on the top two. It's the proximal joints that are contracted. Initially, again, 
This is a flexible deformity. You can stretch the toe out. You can splint the toe. You can wear little splints at night. What causes hammer toes? I've been asked this so many times. How did I get these? What caused these? Very common in your diabetic population because of hyperglycemia, but can also be caused by trauma can be caused by poorly fitting shoes. So very common among women who have frequently worn poorly fitting shoes. There's some thinking that part of it may even be genetics because we definitely see it more with aging. The big problem with hammer toes, um, patients complain that they look ugly, so they don't like the way they look. But beyond that, the major problem is that these toes bend up and rub against the top of the shoe. So it's very common to see corns and ulcers on the tops of the toes. Now, if hammer toes are still flexible, you can manage with splints and exercises and keep them from progressing, hopefully. If they're rigid, it's too late for splints and exercises. You just have to assure that the footwear accommodates the deformity. Again, a deep toe box or surgical correction. So a lot of times people will ask you, what can I do about these? If they're flexible, if I can uh, stretch your toe out, put it back in normal position, then I can recommend splints. I can teach you exercises. If they're fixed, it's all about footwear or surgery. What's the difference between hammer toes and mallet toes? Mallet toes involve contractures of the distal interphalangeal joints. So it ends up looking like a mallet. So you can see that on the bottom illustration. Notice the causes are exactly the same. It's just different joints that are involved. So once again, it's hyperglycemia, trauma, poorly fitted footwear. Because the tip of the toe bends down and rubs against the shoe, it's very common to have callus on the tip of the toe. And management, exactly the same as for hammer toes modified footwear, protection of the tip of the toe, or surgery. Claw toe, both the proximal and the distal joints are, in, are affected, so the toe literally starts to look like a claw. Notice the causes are exactly the same. It's just that now you've got both proximal and distal joints involved. Again, the big deal is corns and calluses because these deformities cause abnormal friction and shear against the footwear and management's the same. So you need to know the difference between hammer toes, mallet toes, and claw toes, what, what the difference is so you can respond appropriately on the exam. But in terms of causes, all three have the same causes. All three have the same management. Now, look at hallux valgus with bunion, one of the most common deformities. The great toe deviates away from the midline, like you see here on both the second 
the middle and the bottom photo. And the first metatarsophalangeal joint becomes abnormally prominent. We don't ever talk about the first metatarsophalangeal joint. We talk about bunion because it's easier to say and write. I mean, everybody knows what you're talking about. So hallux valgus is associated with bunion. What causes it? Frequently genetics. A lot of times if you're talking to someone with a bunion and hallux valgus, if you ask them if either of their parents had it, oh yes, they know exactly who had it. But other causes are poorly fitting footwear and trauma. So once again, and management, once you get a foot deformity, management is gonna come down to modified footwear or surgery. There's no other way to manage foot deformities. So just learn what they are, what these terms mean, so you don't miss it on the exam. Hallux valgus points away, hallux varus points to the midline. So hallux means great toe, valgus means away, varus means um, toward the midline. Um, causes, again, trauma, arthritis can cause this one, or they got overly enthusiastic in correcting a bunion, in correcting hallux valgus and caused hallux varus. Hallux varus is much less common. I definitely expect you to have questions on hallux valgus, bunion, you might have a question on hallux varus, you might not. Bunionette, also known as a Taylor bunion, that's an abnormally prominent fifth metatarsal joint. You see that um, on the slide in the middle. And the only management, they don't typically do surgery, would just make sure they have a wide toe box. Overlapping toes, um, what causes this? Not exactly sure, but very common and especially common once you have other toe deformities. Once you have hallux valgus, then of course toes are going to start overlapping because the great toe's out of position. So can be a domino effect. And again, risk for corns and friction injury. And how do you manage surgery, footwear, protective sleeves? Now the last thing we're going to cover is painful conditions affecting the feet. There's three very common painful conditions, plantar fasciitis, bone spurs, and Morton's neuroma. If you haven't had plantar fasciitis yourself, I'm betting you know someone who has. So you know we've got all this connective tissue, the fascia um, on the bottom of the foot connecting the bones and the joints. And what we have with plantar fasciitis is inflamed fascia and inflamed Achilles tendon, typically caused by excessive pronation. So you know, if again, if you've had this or you know someone who has, one of the most common interventions is an insert to maintain the appropriate contours of the foot during standing, during walking, to prevent excessive pronation. Because what happens with excessive pronation is you get abnormal stretch 
on the fascia, on the Achilles tendon. So now you've got an inflammatory response. You've got stretch injury. Now you've got an inflammatory response. And then with rest, you get swelling because of the injury, because of the inflammatory response. And then when you stand and walk, you have acute pain. So either stretch injury or tendonitis from some other cause or arthritis. But most commonly, stretch injury from excessive pronation or tendonitis. Now, pretty easy to recognize. The symptoms are classic. How do these people get managed? Well, usually they end up in a podiatry office, which is appropriate. Um, they will make sure that they get fitted with an appropriate orthotic to maintain normal contours during standing and walking to prevent excessive pronation. They might also recommend um, cold therapy, icing. Some recommend cold hot therapy to help manage the inflammation. Stretching exercises, uh, anti-inflammatories, sometimes injections, um, and sometimes physical therapy just to help with the stretching exercises to make sure that their gait normalizes. Bone spurs are another cause of um, foot and heel pain. It's caused by an outgrowth of the bone, which then puts pressure on adjacent structures. Commonly seen in people with some type of arthritis. And again, it's all about management. You're not gonna undo the bone spur. So typically they'll start out with inserts and pain management. If the pain persists, the only way to get rid of the bone spur is surgery. And then finally, Morton's neuroma, also known as a neurofibroma. Again, fairly common, so you're relatively likely to see it on certification exam. Um, I want you to actually look at the second bullet point first to see what happens, and then we'll talk about the result. So what happens is you have tight, poorly fitted footwear. So the foot's being crammed in to a narrow shoe and that causes the bones to compress the nerve between the third and fourth toes. So we most commonly see this in women who have worn heels and been on their feet for prolonged periods. Now, when you have the bone compressing that nerve, then you get overgrowth of the nerve tissue between the third and fourth toes. It's right around the plantar intermetatarsal nerve. I don't think they'll ask you that. Now, what are the symptoms? What people tell you is that I have pain and it typically follows the path of that nerve over the ball of the foot extending to the third and fourth toes is triggered or worsened by walking. And sometimes they'll say, well, when I first stand, when I first walk, it's not too bad. It's kind of tingly, a little burny. And then as I get to where I can't take another step, it hurts so badly. So the pain can be very intense. Um, management, get them out of those shoes into modified footwear with a wide toe box so that there's no compression. 
Um, they may need orthotics. They may need injections. They may need surgery. So typically our role would be to refer them to podiatry. And here's that slide you've been waiting for, the summary slide. So we have gone through a lot of systemic conditions with implications for us as foot and nail care nurses. Um, a lot of things that require us to be very cautious, anything that affects perfusion, anything that affects sensory status, anything that affects ability to heal, or that increases the risk of bleeding. We've talked about common foot deformities and gait disorders because as foot and nail nurses, we should always be evaluating a patient's gait. We should be alert to foot deformities. We need to know what these terms mean and what recommended interventions involve. And that's it for this one. The next one is gonna focus on pathology of the skin and soft tissue.